Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? May God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we sang earlier, we pray that you would speak. We know that your word... um, whenever it is read and preached, that you are speaking to us. Um, But we pray also that your spirit would pierce our hearts and speak directly to us and bring conviction and um, hope and faith and love. And that we'd be renewed um, by this message of repentance and of your mercy this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to continue to talk about the mercy of God this morning, which is what we've been looking at um, throughout this book. Um, But today we're going to focus on the repentance of the Ninevites. Uh, I said earlier, I'm tired. It's kind of been a busy week, and I think this will be a shorter message, but that also means it could be a longer message. So I don't know what to I don't know what to tell you. I trust God is able to nourish us, but I want to just speak about the repentance that this passage sort of demonstrates. Um, As we've been looking at the mercy of God throughout Jonah, uh, we've been talking about how God's mercy is his compassion. It's his kindness towards sinners that deserve um, God's judgment, right? And we've seen how God's mercy extends far beyond what we tend to expect about God's mercy and that God really is way more merciful than we are, way more merciful than we are. And yet, That does not in any way mean that God is not just. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. As we saw last week, God confronts the violence of Nineveh. And he says, I'm going to overthrow it. And and Trevor talked last week about how that's ambiguous. Does that mean God's going to destroy them? Yeah, it could be. Or that he could overturn their violence. They they could be changed. And, uh, And that itself is the mercy of God, that he confronts the violence of Nineveh and um, invites them to experience transformation. Um, Just remember the story, how it's gone down. In chapter one, we saw that uh, Jonah was called to preach to Nineveh, and he said, I don't want anything to do with that mission, that vocation. And he ran from God, tried to get as far away from God as he could. Uh, He went out the opposite direction on a boat, 
eventually the storm comes and, you know, it's a, it's a long thing, but essentially he ends up getting tossed in the ocean. He's sinking in the sea. He's about as far away from God as he can get. And then he's, um, by the mercy of God, swallowed by this great fish or whale or something that, um, that preserves his life. And so as he's in this dark tomb of the belly of this beast, he, um, he prays to God and he recognizes the mercy of God and he repents of running from God. And so in chapter three, as we started here, it says that Jonah received the word of the Lord a second time, which is also the mercy of God that, that, uh, that Jonah, despite his running, is still given this opportunity to obey. And so now he goes to preach to Nineveh and Nineveh, remember, is the center of the military power of the great empire of Assyria, this incredibly violent and vicious empire that has been incredibly dominant and then kind of waning in its power in this season. But then as we just read a moment ago in our scripture reading, they gain power again. They end up um, taking Israel into exile. So um, they're in this season where there's revolts, there's rebellions. um, The kings are a little bit more unstable. And um, so Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches um, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's ambiguous. What does that mean? Um, Are they going to repent? Are they going to be destroyed? Um, And something amazing happens. Um, he preaches to the city and the, it says Nineveh believed God. They believed Jonah's message about what God was going to do. And it says this, this believing was from the greatest to the least. It's, a, it's, a, it's an overwhelming response, a comprehensive response. This is like a preacher's dream come true, right? You, you go and you preach and everyone's like, we're totally listening to everything you're saying and we're doing it. And you're like, really? Okay. Um, that's amazing. Um, And what's ironic about this is that Nineveh is more righteous than Jonah. I mean, Jonah heard the word of the Lord and he ran. Nineveh hears the word of the Lord and they repent. Nineveh Nineveh heard it one time. Jonah's had to hear it a second time. Um, So there's this irony in this story. Jonah is not as great as, as Nineveh, really. Nineveh believes God's warning and they repent. And so I just want to reflect on that repentance and see, um, what this teaches us about repentance in our lives. And I think this is a really important thing to just kind of slow down and look at carefully because, you know, false repentance is a real thing, right? We we know this. We've all seen uh, or experienced or maybe we've given a fake or insincere apology, haven't we? I mean, I know I have. Things like, look, I'm sorry people were offended, you know, that happened out there, right? Or, um, well, I'm sorry if you, you know, felt that way. Or um, mistakes were made. You know, those sorts of things, right? These non-apologies. We, we know that goes on. And if we're honest, we have, we have done those sorts of things. Um, and it really matters um, when we think about reconciling relationships that there's real repentance, right? You can't really have reconciliation when there's been a wrong if it's fake repentance going on, it's the trust can't be restored. You can't come back together. So, and, I mean, that's so much a huge part of life, like re- reconciling with people, forgiveness. How do we know how to do that if we can't identify and if we don't know how to truly repent? So that's what I want to talk about, because frankly, repentance is the fuel of change in the Christian life. And I would even say probably to a certain degree, uh, repentance is just like a huge part of becoming a mature person. I think those two things are the same, but sometimes it's helpful to tease those out. That if you want to grow in maturity, if you want to grow in godliness, you have to learn how to repent well. 
if you want to see deep, consistent, long-term change. That's, it, it depends on that. So we're going to look at some lessons in repentance, and I want us to see today um, that repentance, true repentance, is internal, external, and vertical. That's, that's what we're going to see, internal, external, and vertical. All right? So first, let me, let me point out why uh, the Ninevites show us that repentance is internal. Okay, so go back to the text. Look at verse 5. Uh, it says that the people of Nineveh believed God. Um, they, they heard Jonah's message. They believed it was true. They agreed with it. They were a violent, wicked people. And they, they agreed with that judgment that was being issued. And they said, you know, essentially, we see we need to change. That's an internal thing, right? Verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the wickedness, from the, from the violence that is in his hands. That's what the king said to the Ninevites. And so here he's issuing this, um, this proclamation after the fact that there's, there's already been widespread reception of God's message through Jonah. But the king, it, he, it comes to him and he proclaims it so that everyone hears it. And it says people great and small committed to change. Right, uh, they, they they do these practices of fasting and all that, but um, even after three days, the disaster was promised in forty, which means for another forty days or thirty-seven days, they're kind of like we, we got to turn our lives around. There's a commitment to change, right? In verse nine, we see that the king um, does not try to control God in his repentance. This is important. Verse nine, he says, "Who knows? God may turn. He may do this. He may turn and relent." And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Right? That phrase, who knows, is kind of important. It suggests he knew they had to admit they're wrong without any claim to deserve God's mercy. Without any assurance that God wasn't going to judge them anyway. He's like, we are wrong. Regardless of the impact that has on what God does, we have to admit we're wrong and we got to change. So the Ninevites were convinced of their wickedness and their need to change. They made an internal commitment to change and they surrendered control to God. And I think all three of those are really important to, to recognize in true repentance. True repentance is, is internal, and it involves this mind that agrees with you know, what's being brought to us, the, the charge against us. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a conviction, it's an agreement that we have done wrong. It, it is a turning of our hearts where we, we, we want to go the other direction. Uh, we begin to forsake our way, the evil of our lives. And, and then there's a surrender of the will, surrendering control. Um, and even, even the claim of mercy, it's a surrendering to that. It's saying, I, really, I have done wrong, and I'm going to name that regardless of the consequences here. I'm, I'm, I'm surrendering control over to other people. All three of those are internal things that are wrapped up in true repentance. Now, false repentance, if you kind of meditate on those three things, is really not often internal. Uh, it doesn't ultimately agree with the rebuke brought against us, right? So think about um, when, when you're not really repenting or someone's not really repenting of what you've brought to them, there's a minimizing of the charge. It's not really a big deal. Uh, I don't really think that's the issue you think it is. Or, well, yes, but, and blaming the other person, right, uh, who's bringing the rebuke or justifying the behavior in some way, right? Denying that we are wrong or that the action is wrong. That That's a huge part of false repentance. It's not ultimately agreeing in our minds that what has happened is wrong. And so, you know, in my life, that often comes out like this. Good grief, why do you even bring that up? 
I mean, ah, okay, that's a small thing. Why are you even, why are you making an issue out of this, right? Yeah. That's, that's not true repentance, right? It's not agreeing in the mind, all right? It also, um, false repentance doesn't ultimately commit in our hearts to turning around, right? Uh, and so this is why false repentance often involves concealing or rushing past the issue, Okay, so it's like, okay, yes, I agree, that was wrong, fine. Like, why are we, let's move on. We, we've already dealt with this, let's just get past this. And it's, it's trying to rush past things. There's no real deep commitment to address that issue and to change. And lastly, it doesn't ultimately surrender. There's, there's not this will that's affected to the offended, right? And so um, we often are trying to manage the consequences of our sin or demand people forgive us right away or we attack back in some way. Uh, you know, I said, I'm sorry, you have to drop this, you did this. And, uh, and so there's not this surrender. There's still this attempt to try to be in control of the situation and to manage the fallout of our sin. True repentance is internal. There's this humility that comes with it. We see ourselves more clearly than before. We are, are decentered, so to speak, like we're no longer in the driver's seat. We take seriously the impact that what we've done has had on other people. So whether we've sinned against God or uh, alone, or we've sinned against other people, repentance is an, it, it begins internally. Now, the second thing I want us to see is that true repentance is also external. So it's not merely internal, it's also external. Look again at the Ninevites. And uh, if you see again in verse five, that the people um, are calling for fasting and wearing sackcloth. Uh, and then in verse six, the king does this himself. He um, gets down off his throne. He, um, he begins to fast. He, he changes his clothes. He gets in these ashes on the ground. And in verses seven and eight, the king calls the whole city and even the animals to join in this practice. And, and he names the violence of the, the culture of the society. He says, we are a vi- everyone needs to turn from their violence, from their evil. Now, what's going on here? That, that seems a little weird to us. And you might say, oh, Derek, are you telling us we have to get down in the ashes when we are repenting? And not, not quite, but what was going on in Assyria is a, was a very common way of visibly demonstrating sorrow and humility and repentance in that culture. This is the way they did that. Um, there is humility, taking a low place, cut, stepping down off the throne, uh, getting down in ashes, uh, putting on d- uncomfortable clothing like sackcloth. It's scratchy. It's not like silk and uh, nice on your skin. It was uncomfortable. Um, fasting is self-denial. All of these actions are meant to visibly demonstrate sorrow and humility as an act of repentance. So you know, how can I help us understand this? But just, just imagine um, if you have been sort of deeply hurt by someone's cruel words um, and they come up to you and they say um, that they're sorry and you say, well, I forgive you. And then immediately they turn around, they're joking around, cracking up. They're like, let's go watch, you know, this comedian on Netflix. And it's just like, there's just sort of this quick turn to very lighthearted actions. Um, where it, it doesn't seem like they sense the gravity of what they have done, right? That's, that's kind of why these sorts of actions were important, that they are ways of, of taking seriously and being sober about the consequences of their sin and to express visibly um, their, their repentance, that, that they're being humbled and that there's sorrow about what they have done. 
So the Ninevites, they were naming their sin. They named their violence. Those are words. They um, embodied humility. You know, in their very bodies, they were demonstrating humility. They were denying themselves. That's the fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And then their actions had to change, right? So for, for the other 37 days after the fast, um, they had to start living in new ways. Their actions had changed. And so what I want us to see in that is that true repentance is external. It's not just internal. It's also external. It involves words of confession. It involves humbling ourselves and embodying in our, you know, in our bodies, showing our sorrow, and then living in ways um, that are consistent with a changed mind, heart, and will. Our actions have to begin to reflect the internal change that has gone on. Now, false repentance is almost always insufficiently external. Now, I will say a lot of false repentance, it, it is external and it displays a lot, but it actually is not internally accurate. And then even externally, it falls short. short. So um, false repentance is unable and unwilling usually to name the real offense. And, and we've all, I think we've all experienced this and we've probably all done it too, where, um, you know, there's a charge against us and we, and we confess, but we, we, we frame it in a certain way. Uh, we ignore certain dimensions of what we've done, um, and we are really downplaying or hiding or, or avoiding the real issue of what we have done. The, our words of confession do not match what has happened, and that's false repentance. We need to name our sin when we have done wrong. So um, it's unable to name the real offense, but also false repentance is often merely verbal. So sometimes false repentance is saying, I'm sorry. And, and is able to state exactly what we did, but it's, it's very cold and sort of formal. And it's like, okay, I have done what I'm supposed to do. I said I'm sorry for this thing. It's very performative. Or you could say it's merely verbal, but it also has great displays of tears and sorrow. Um, that happens as well. Big show of sorrow, a big show of, oh, I can't believe this happened and I did this. And it, it's, it's saying the right things. It's looking sorrowful but it ultimately lacks actions that bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. There's not a changed life that comes. It, 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 it's a big display and then goes right back to what was happening before. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, um, he, he is basically putting his finger on this with the Pharisees who have come out to his baptism and he's He's like, what are you guys doing here? You know, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You're, you're coming out here and you're washing like everybody else. And you're, you know, sort of suggesting you're repentant, but you don't, you are not changing. You are continuing to live in the unjust and oppressive ways that you were living before. That's not true repentance because your lives don't bear the fruit of true repentance. So true repentance is external in that it demonstrates the internal changes. It's a change of mind and heart and will that shows up in a way that other people can see it. It involves our words, but it isn't merely words. It involves our actions, not perfectly, but our actions begin to show this new trajectory to our lives. And that, that is important. That's essential to true repentance. But even there, there's still more to it. So finally, what I want us to see is that true repentance is not merely internal and external. It's also vertical. And so um, here's where I think Nineveh uh, doesn't quite meet the mark. Um, Nineveh is better than Jonah and and Israel, um, but their repentance is still, in some sense, incomplete or shallow. 
Um, Jonah repented for rejecting God's call. Nineveh is better than that. They actually turn around the first time that God's word comes to them and they repent of their evil ways. But unlike the sailors on the boat, if you remember in chapter one, that that call out to God and begin to call him Yahweh and they worship God and they offer sacrifices where um, it's showing they have become followers of Yahweh. You don't get any of that with Nineveh. They do repent of their evil, but they don't ever um, name God as Yahweh. There's no indication that they have, have identified the heart of why they were living wicked lives, their false worship of pagan gods. There's no repenting of their idolatry. None of that happens. And so in a sense, their repentance is sincere, but ultimately it, is, it doesn't go all the way down into the depths of their problem, and it doesn't really ultimately relate to God. There's a fear of God, but there's not really a love of God. And their acts of sorrow and humility, in some ways, they are functioning almost like an atonement. They're trying to appease God through their actions, through their repentance. But true repentance is directed toward God. That's not trying to atone before God. It's, It's turning to him and looking to his mercy. It recognizes that at bottom, our sins are against other people, yes, but first and foremost, they are against God, and they're grounded in our failure to treat God as God. True repentance gets to our distorted worship. It gets to our idolatry. It admits that we have served things that God has made rather than him, the creator. It turns um, from loving and trusting and hoping in created things and finding our identity in created things to finding all of that in our creator and redeemer. False repentance at the end of the day, friends, is just a form of self-salvation. It's an attempt to save ourselves by getting back in the favor of false gods or the true God in some way. It's, it's uh, performing, it's sorrow, it's changing, but it's all based on our own efforts rather than receiving the mercy of God. So think about this. If you... If you serve acceptance of other people, if that's really what your life is around, you, you've, you've kind of been trained your whole life to think about how do I just live so everyone's happy with me and no one's mad at me and, and people like me. If that's the God you worship, then your repentance, false repentance, is often going to be um, to deny charges because you, you don't want to admit that you've messed up and fall under God, uh, people's bad graces. Or there's this groveling um, and, and deep sorrow, and what, what can I do? There's this pleading to try to get back in the good graces of other people. It's ultimately a form of atonement. Or maybe you worship status and power, and so um, you, you're exposed and caught in your sin, and so there's these sorrowful tears um, that you, you do everything you can. You desperately um, work to try to keep that, that job or that role that you have. Or maybe it's security. You, you just want to feel safe in your life, and, um, and then you screw up in some way. And so your repentance is, um, okay, I'll do whatever I have to do. I'm going to change so that I can get back into that safe place I was before. All of these are, there are forms of self-salvation where we are still in control. We are still trying to earn our place. But true repentance is internal, external, but ultimately it is vertical and it receives the grace of God, which brings joy. True repentance then can only come if we are embracing the gift of Jesus Christ and the mercy that he offers. Now, Jesus in his ministry in, in uh, Matthew chapter 12 talks about Jonah specifically. And he, he's, you know, in his ministry, he's preaching to Pharisees and, 
um, and to other people. And he, they want a sign. They're saying, you know, prove to us that you are who you say you are. And he, and he says, you know, basically, I've given you everything you need to believe in me. And yet you continue to resist. And he says, the only sign you're going to get from me at this point is what he calls the sign of Jonah. What does he mean by that? Well, he's, he's basically saying Jonah was in this belly of a fish or a whale for three days. And then he came out and he preached to Nineveh. That was the sign. He was assigned to Nineveh, this preaching of, of repentance. And Nineveh repented. They received that sign. And Jesus says, but I'm here and I'm going to spend um, three days in a grave as well. And, and then through the resurrection, I'm going to preach forgiveness. That's the only sign you're going to get. And, um, and Nineveh repented. They didn't need that sort of sign. And so it's, it's sort of condemnation on them that they are requiring this sort of sign of him. But he says, that's the sign you're going to get is that I'm, di- I'm going to die and rise again for the forgiveness of sins. And, you know, why did Jesus spend those three days in that grave? It's because he was bearing our judgment. He was bearing our judgment. He took the full weight of all our sins so that we could be forgiven. And he rose again to bring us into this new life where we could bear fruit, the fruit of righteousness, right? And so what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is that only if you believe that message, not just the message of warning, you know, repent, you're going to be judged, but um, repent and believe that there is forgiveness in Christ. Only if you put your hope in that message can you actually begin to fully repent in the deepest way. Because it's the cross that convinces us that our sins are truly wrong at the deepest level. I mean, that, the cross is this big picture of where our sin takes us and what our sin deserves, is that um, we've got to die and bear the judgment of God. The cross also exposes our evil and shows God's love for us so that our hearts are melted and we begin to want to live in a new way. The cross shows us that we're powerless before the judgment of God, and yet Christ has shown us mercy by putting himself in our place. The cross frees us to name our sins without fear of condemnation. We don't have to be defensive. We can own um, the, the things that we have done wrong. The cross fuels real actions of change because the power of sin is broken, and we realize we, we actually do not have to keep living in the patterns in which we have learned to live. And the cross is God's grace to us, so we don't have to pretend or deny or blame that we don't have uh, or that, we, that we've got to save ourselves. It says, no, that's not possible at all. You can only repent if you see the grace of God for you in Jesus Christ. So whether it's against God alone or God and other people, God's grace to us in Christ makes us um, able to repent and it's, it, it brings joy to us rather than fear, right? The false repentance in one sense is driven by fear and in many ways is, is continues to be wrapped up in fear, right? Because it's still, it's still us trying to atone for our sin in some way. And so there's always this, have I done enough to avoid the judgment? But God's forgiveness makes our repentance um, be able to be filled with joy. When we repent, we're not doing it, we do express sorrow, but we're not doing it out of this fear that judgment is coming. It lifts our heads to say, ah, this is bringing me into new life. Repentance is helping me deal with the ugliness in me. It's helping me deal with those parts of my life that need refining. And that leads to joy, rejoicing in the grace of God, rejoicing in the the work that he's doing in us. So if all of this is true, then then how do we apologize? I know that seems like a really simple thing. How do we apologize? How do we repent? And so I want to show you just two little helpful guides that I've come across um, 
in my life. Yeah, that, that kind of works. Um, of how to apologize. I'm borrowing this from other people. One of them is, uh, I don't remember the guy's name. He's, he came up with this um, score is the way he thinks about repentance. Um, and so he says, you start with surrender. Uh, and then it leads to confessing, naming our sin, taking responsibility for it, own, recognize the harm and the damage that we have done, and empathize with the offended. That's the way he kind of goes through it. And often, false repentance, fake apologies, they leave out one or more of these. Okay, so score. That might be a helpful way to remember that. Um, there's another guy, Duke Kwan. He's a pastor in the PCA. Um, he, he's got a different list. It doesn't spell anything, I don't think. Something like that. Um, but he says, um, express sorrow, own your guilt, Name the specifics. That's hard to do. Name the impact that, that those specific specifics have had. Avoid conditionals, like I'm sorry if. That's a, that's a common one. Um, don't blame or defend. Don't use a passive voice like I'm sorry you were blah, 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 blah. Speak in the first person. Speak actively about what you've done. And then these are key. Make amends to repair what was destroyed. Do what you can to repair what you've destroyed. Maybe the way you've harmed the person, the, the trust has been broken. So maybe something literally has been broken. Um, and, then, and then work to restore trust generally. I think, I mean, these aren't perfect, but they're helpful guides for thinking about how do we apologize? How do we repent to those around us? And, and honestly, you can do this to God as well. Um, we don't, we're not atoning for our sin when we try to repair what we've broken. That's not atonement. It doesn't have to be. It, it, it can try to function that way. But if we're, if we're truly repentant, we're trying to restore relationship and we're trying to grow as people, then we want to take steps to actively try to repair what we've broken. And then I'll say one other thing about how to apologize, and that's that true repentance is demonstrated um, as far as the scope of our sin has gone. And what I mean by that is that if you sin, you know, in your head, you, you curse God or something like that, you know, you sin against God, then, you know, your repentance and apology stays between you and God. Um, if you sin against another person, you don't just get to say, well, I've, I've repented to God for that. You got to go to that person. You got to deal with the person that you've sinned against. If your sin is, is public and widespread and scandalous, then that's also where our repentance um, needs to go. And that's, that's hard to, to do, but that's what's required of us if we're truly repentant and taking ownership for what's going on. And I, and I make this last point because sometimes in the church, um, because God offers forgiveness in Christ through faith alone, sometimes people think that, as, well, as long as I repent to God, then I don't have to do any of that other stuff. And um, that's, just, that's a failure to see how God's grace has worked out in our lives um, to other people. So let's not be deceived in that respect. But what I want us to hear today, bottom line, is that um, the mercy of God is for all who repent. It's there for us. In fact, repentance itself is the mercy of God at work in our lives. This is hard to do. You, can't, you cannot repent like this. We cannot repent like this unless the Spirit of God is, is working in us. That's a gift from Him already. And that's a mercy to us. It's painful. It's so hard to do. I mean... Uh, yeah, I had to repent to somebody yesterday um, in our presbytery. And, um, you know, I think this guy's done a bunch of things wrong. doesn't matter. I did something and I had to own that. And I, you know, 
I didn't say, well, hey, as, as long as you own your stuff, I'll own mine. No, I had, to, I had to repent for what I had done, the way I'd spoken to this guy. And it was like the worst part of my day yesterday. But it's, it's also a good thing because I'm like, all right, that's, that's God working on me. I'm not who I was yesterday. And he's refining me. He's softening me. He's making me the sort of person who can um, treat people that I don't always agree with or like better. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of things going on there. And that's the mercy of God in my life. And God offers that mercy to all of us. And, uh, you know, the table is, is just one of the best places to learn about repentance. Because um, here we come and we basically say, I need the mercy of God and I'm a sinner. And, and God says, look, Christ gave his life for you. He gave his body on a cross and took your judgment and he shed his blood so that you could be cleansed of all that corruption and set free and he welcomes you. And so God's mercy is on offer to you. So you come repenting. That's how we come to this table. You don't come, I'm one of the good guys now, I'm in the church. You know, No, it's like we come as the people who are repenting and receiving mercy. And that's on offer to all of us. So let's pray and then we'll feast.